you ever expect to be disappointed? Um, we all live with expectations. And I'm wondering what expectations you've had or have that haven't been met. And about the type of people who have failed to meet your expectations. Liz spoke to the kids about hockey players who developed a high level of proficiency. I, I used to be a member at a gym in Hamilton, Ontario, and the gym, uh, it was a very small gym, and the owner's name was Frank. And I came there early one morning, and Frank had had the experience, he said, of a lifetime. He had gone to uh, Toronto and had watched the Maple Leafs. Uh, he wasn't particularly impressed about them getting beat. But he said, I will never again complain and the impact that they have because I learned how good they are, even the worst of them. And that made me think. What does it take to become good at something? Playing the piano, playing hockey, being a teacher, being a parent, being a follower of Jesus. What does it take? Time, effort, practice, evaluation. A book was written a number of years ago that says that if you really want to become good at something, spend 10,000 hours at it. 10,000 hours. I'll use this this way. 10,000 hours. Stop to think about that for a moment. How long that will be if you spend 40 hours a week practicing the piano, practicing a deft move on skates. Do you practice at being a parent? What would that take to be a parent? To meet the expectations of your children. You need to practice self-control. You need to practice counting to at least 10 before you explode. You need to practice asking for forgiveness. You ever asked for forgiveness from your child? I did. I have. Because I can explode and when I explode, I say stupid, thoughtless things. We've already experienced a lot of emotion here this morning. There is a Redeemer was known to me, became known to me in February of 1993 because Fred Leinstra crossed the river in Maple Ridge had died and he said, I want that sung at my funeral, and I don't think I had ever heard it before. And when we sang it this morning, I thought of Fred.
And I thought of the pain of his family and of his loss and what that meant to the community. How do you get over that? You build community. You practice meeting together. The writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But a community that grieves as well as celebrates together strives towards health. So have you ever been disappointed? Have people not met your expectations? Or have you ever been disappointing? Have you failed to meet the expectations of, of another or of others? I have to confess, I have no idea where this is going. Because, you know, Martin, who's been a friend since seminary, gets choked up, and then he makes me get choked up. And, and that is so healthy. That is so good. But it makes me think about meeting expectations. What expectations do you have of me this morning? That I'll be clear? That I'll be confident? That I'll be convicting? That I'll be convincing? That I will be correct? That I will not be boring? What expectations do you have? Now let me up the ante a little bit and ask this. What expectations do you have of Jesus this morning? This Jesus who we come before, whose birth we have celebrated, and in a soon few weeks' time we'll begin to consider or enter into the season of Lent, and we will recognize the reality that he came not just simply to live, but he came to die and he came to pay the price of our salvation. But what expectations do you have of him this morning? What would he not do for you? What would he do for you, for me? Comfort us in the midst of grieving because people died, people just been told Medically, there is nothing more that can be done because a sister of a good friend has entered into hospice and is not expected to live, and it's too early. Do you expect healing? You can. Will you be disappointed if it doesn't happen? You might. Do you expect comfort when you come to a graveside or to a memorial service? Do you expect to be comforted so that you can go on? What do you expect of Jesus this morning? I want to read a parable. It's found in Luke chapter 7. It's not a difficult parable. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. 
but it is a challenging parable because it highlights expectation and the failure to meet it as well as the meeting of it. It highlights the brokenness of a person bound and caught in sin and it highlights the arrogance of a person who figured he had it all together. But it also stands in context. And so we're going to read, and we can put that up on the screen now. We're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 36. But I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles and uh, turn to page 1035, and then just leave your Bible open on your lap. You know, be more Baptist, right? Keep your Bibles open. Uh, leave your Bible open on your lap because I want to take a journey with you through that scripture. But first, let me read this particular parable. When one of the Pharisees, whose name was Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, just let me stop there for a moment and note that, he said to himself, we'll come back to that in a moment, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Let me stop there now for a moment. The word teacher here, we might anticipate to be rabbi but it is not. It is diaskolone in Greek, which means just teacher, not, it, not the, 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 the whole idea of this person is standing out, you know, someone in the foyer this morning when, I, when we were meeting each other, he said, good morning, Domine. And I said to him, I haven't been called that in a long time, right? But, you know, the, there's that sort of honorific that goes with it, okay? Good morning, or tell me, teacher, he said. And then Jesus goes on. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the women, to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But when she wet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, 
but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who, ha who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. You know, this is uh, not a hard parable to understand, but it stands in context. Now, I hope you kept your Bibles open. It stands in context. If you go back now to the beginning of chapter 7, you will find there a whole series of stories that sort of set up this particular parable. Jesus has just finished what is termed the Sermon on the Plain. It's a sermon that he gave in a flat area, and it's very well, uh, a, a very much a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount that you find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. For us preachers, it's always nice to know that even Jesus used sermons again and again. But the reality is, is that he has been set up by Luke here to be a conveyor of a particular truth. And that is that he meets particular expectations. The first story you run into is the story of a centurion, a Roman, who sends a delegation of Jewish elders to ask Jesus if he would heal one of the Roman soldiers, centurion's favorite servants, who was on his deathbed. And Jesus agrees because, and this is the really interesting part, the Jews said, you should do this. Imagine this. This is like collaborating with the enemy. You should do this because this is a good centurion. He has done many good things for us, including the building of our synagogue. And so Jesus goes. And on the way, the centurion sends another delegation of his servants and says, uh, don't bother coming to the house. And then he says something very interesting. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. And Jesus stops. Something has surprised him. He says, not even in Israel have I seen faith like this Roman centurion has displayed. The Roman centurion has surpassed the expectation that Jesus had. Do you ever surprise Jesus? Do you ever go beyond what he expects? This Roman centurion did. Jesus keeps going. The next story is a story of the widow of Nain. And she is taking out her only child to be buried. He has died. Well, and the whole litany of what we heard this morning of people who are in hospice and people who have died and people who are on the road towards death. 
We, we know the reality and the pain of death. But the detail here is important. This is her only son, and she is a woman. And that means that she is extremely vulnerable. She has nothing, no one, to fall back on. And Jesus sees it and is filled with compassion. That word compassion is such an interesting word because it means to come into the suffering of someone, to share their pain, but then also to see what you can do about alleviating that particular pain. And Jesus stops and he raises this dead son from the dead and restores him to his mother and no doubt there is a great celebration but note what is said in the text the people stand amazed a great prophet has come a great prophet has come now i think many of them knew the history of redemption because great prophets like elijah and elisha had also raised sons from the dead. Elijah raises the son of the widow of Zarephath, where he has gone in the midst of famine. And Elisha raises the son of a woman and her husband who had had no children, and then late in life, based on his promise, they had received a son, and now that son had a pain in his head, who knows why, and is, has died. And Elisha goes and he is brought back to life. A great prophet has risen in, in the pattern of Elijah and Elisha. Wow, what can we expect now? And then the next story that Luke puts in here is the story of disappointment. Prophet Malachi had said that an Elijah would come. And Jesus identifies him as John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, having heard what Jesus has been doing, sends his disciples and asks Jesus a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? Imagine that. John the Baptist saying, I think I'm disappointed in you, Jesus. I was expecting someone who would rouse us up and lead us to freedom. I'm disappointed. Maybe you're not the one that I thought was the one. Maybe there should be another. And Jesus sends John's disciples back with a message. You go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are healed and restored, and the poor, they have the good news preached to them. Who are the poor? The broken, the woman in Simon's house, weeping at the feet of Jesus without any expectation of good news. She has the gospel preached. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
And then there's this little interesting interlude where Jesus talks about the chill or, or the piper who plays and the dirge that is sung. And you, when the piper played, you didn't get up to dance. And when the dirge is sung, you didn't get up to mourn. You were just fence sitters, says Jesus. But wisdom will be known by her children. Wisdom will be known. Who's he talking to? Well, he's, I think he's talking to the Pharisees and to the people who are walking around looking at Jesus and not doing anything about Jesus. But wisdom will be known by their children, by her children. The Messiah will be known by their fruit, by his fruit. And Jesus cycling back to John, Jesus says, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Why would he say that? Because the least in the kingdom of God has insight into God's bigger plan. Insight into the plan that God will take the Roman centurion and make him part of his family. Insight into the plan that God will take the vulnerable widow and restore hope to her. Insight into the plan that God will meet the blind and restore sight and the deaf and restore hearing and the lame and restore mobility and insight into the fact that the poor, the ones who do not count, who, about whom we have little or no expectation, the poor will have good news preached to them that says there is reason to hope there is reason to live because you will move beyond the mourning place and the deathbed and the hospice and the palliative care and the funeral home and you will have reason to proclaim hope to the people around you. Oh, the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because you will understand who Jesus really is. He is meeting your expectations. Who then is this? The guests ask, that he can forgive sins. Well, he's God in the flesh. And we can expect much from him. And then Jesus is invited to this dinner. Simon invites him. A woman comes in. She is not given a name. She is a sinner. There is no detail about what her sin is. She is not given a voice. She says absolutely nothing. But she takes great action. She expresses the brokenness of her heart. She lets down her hair, which in that culture would never be done. And she wipes the feet of Jesus that she has wet with her tears with her hair. And then she takes an alabaster jar of perfume. The alabaster is very expensive. The perfume, which we think probably came from the area of India or Pakistan, so a long ways away from where Jesus currently is, very expensive. It is thought that that little jar of alabaster perfume was probably worth a year's and a half's worth of wages. 
Just put that in your own context. It's more than Chanel, Chanel number five. Okay? It, it's just simply more. Or Shalimar, which is my wife's favorite perfume. All right? A little bottle, 90 bucks. Whoa. It lasts a long time at our house. Okay? But the reality, the reality, she took this thing and broke it and poured it over Jesus' feet. It was extravagant and wasteful and honoring. Why? Well, Jesus had met her expectations. He had come to the brokenness of her heart and of her life. He received her repentance. He understood the reason behind her tears. He understood the willingness she had to humble himself, herself before him. He understood the extravagance of the sacrifice. And he says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. And there are these two people, the one who owes 50 denarii and the other who owes 500. A denarii was the, wa the wage of a basic working person, of a laborer. In the context of today, I want to make sure I get this right because math is not my strong suit. In British Columbia, do you know what the minimum wage is? $15 and 65 cents. It's an important detail. In an eight-hour day, now the people of Jesus' day probably didn't work eight hours. They probably worked 10, 12, or longer. In an eight-hour day, a minimum wage produces $125.20. 50 days worth of debt, $6,260 in today's terms. That's what the 50 denarii debtor owed. The 500 denarii debtor, at the same rate, $15.65 an hour times eight hours, owes $62,600. And Jesus says, Simon, imagine that the moneylender, just put yourself in this position. You owe $6,000 and change and $62,000 and change on your lines of credit. Your banker comes to visit you. And your banker says, you have to pay up. And you say, I can't. And the banker pulls out her checkbook and writes you a check for $6,000 and says, paid in full. And the banker pulls out her checkbook and writes you a check for $62,000 and change and says, paid in full. Which one is going to be more grateful? Well, they'll both be, more, be very grateful. I would, whether 6,000 or 62,000. But at 62,000, that's a lot of days of work. 500 days of work spread over uh, a number of years. That's a long debt to pay off versus 50 days of work. And Simon says, well, maybe I suppose the person who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, good job, you answered correctly. I just love his sarcasm here. Good job, you got it. And then he lowers the boom. You did not welcome me with water. You did not kiss me. I have a sister who lives in Holland. Whenever she, I, she comes, whenever I see her, she does whoop, whoop, whoop. Never touches me, right? 
Do you have relatives who do that too, right? Who kiss you, air kiss, right? That's the idea here, okay? You did not kiss me, or you did not shake my hand. You didn't do that. You didn't meet my expectation. You didn't put any oil on my head to cover the smell of my journey. But this woman, and then he goes into the details of what she did. And then he, he, he brings the reality to focus. He, she, he who has been forgiven little loves little. He or she who has been forgiven much loves much. What can you expect of Jesus? That he will love you a lot. That he will love you to the point where he will go to the cross for you, that he will love you to the point that he will die in your place, that he will love you to the point where he will rise, ascend, and send his spirit to live in your life and in your heart each day so that you can strive to meet expectation. And then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. That's what you can expect from Jesus. If you put your trust and hope and faith in him, he will say to you, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Who is this? The guest asked. He is God's son. He is the transforming power. He is the one who at whose feet you and I need to sit so that we may get up and walk with good effort and practice the way of the Lord. Notice I didn't stop reading there, but I went on into the next chapter because when it was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. It was intended to be a, a narrative, a story into which you were drawn, and you shouldn't pay so much attention to chapters and verses. Just read and expose yourself to the whole thing. Women in that day counted for next to nothing. They were there to care and to produce children and if they weren't able to produce children, they would be reproached and shamed. Remember Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist? The Lord has removed my reproach. Women who had very little power and authority began to follow Jesus. Women who had been healed, Mary Magdalene, a woman whose husband was in Herod's household as his chief of staff, Susanna, about whom we know a little, and others. And they came with Jesus, and they met his need. They gave out of themselves. They followed his way. We asked the question, what can we expect of Jesus? And you and I can expect his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his truth. And he spoke truth to Simon. He'll speak to us. 
and we can expect to be restored. Even in the brokenness of our grief, as we mourn people die who died and who are dying and who are in hospice, we can expect that he will comfort us. Well, let me flip that question in conclusion. What can he expect from us who have sat at his feet? 10,000 hours? That's just a drop in the bucket. A lifetime. A transformation. A dedication to walk in his way 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year until the day he calls us home. I don't believe we can do that well on our own. We need community. We need community to mourn. We need community to celebrate. So let me say, I believe Jesus expects you to follow him and to invest in his community of redemptive grace, the church. The church is the hope of the coming generation in the coming generations. That means that you and I are. Will you live up to that expectation? Will I? That is the question before us. Will we have window into the kingdom and understand the depth of the calling to which we are called? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Savior of the universe, King of our lives, we come before you. We are moved, we are humbled, we are in pain because of sorrow and grief. We are also living in hope because you have come amongst us as unworthy as we are, and you stand and marvel of our faith as small as it might be. And when we repent before you, and when we weep before you, we can be assured that you will meet what we need. Namely, you will say to us, all of your sin is forgiven. Go in peace. And we pray, Lord, that we then may respond in obedient hope and that we may give ourselves as a sacrifice of praise, living out our lives before you in dedicated service. So hear our prayer and bless us as we move forward. Help us to forgive as we have been forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.